435, and this uh, whole section, we probably won't comment on this uh, too much until we get to the end of it and tie it together, but this, from Mark 435 to the end of chapter 5, we just have a series of events in which Jesus tackles problems that were humanly impossible. And it's amazing, the things Jesus did. And there's also a number of lessons that we'll learn from each of these stories. So would somebody read Mark 4.35 to the end of the chapter? On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay. So Jesus is where? On the Sea of? Galilee. Galilee. Going over to the side of the Sea of Galilee where he did not spend much time. And who is with Jesus? Disciples. The disciples. And what happens? Storm. Yeah, terrible storm. How bad was it? The boat was filling up with water. Yeah, it was just uh, terrifying, really. Um, and what was Jesus thinking as all this starts happening? <laughs> Is it a little ironic that the only place in the Gospels we read about Jesus, Jesus sleeping is here during a storm? <laughs> you know, we're, we assume he did sleep at other times, but uh, the scriptures don't bother to tell us about it. Except right here, he's asleep while this boat is about to sink. And what happens? They wake him up. Yeah, the disciples wake him up. In fact, uh, how are they? How do they do that? They just woke him up and said, don't you care that we're dying? And they're a bit <laughs> agitated about this, don't you think? You know really worried and and anxious about it. So, you know, they, you can imagine them shaking him away. Don't you care? We're about to die. You know, and here you are asleep. And Jesus gets up. And how agitated does he appear? Not very. Not very. <laughs> he gets up and what does he do? Calms it. Yeah. Rebukes the wind. Tells the sea to hush now. Yeah says, hush, be still. You know, it's amazing. Now, think about what would happen. You've got a terrible storm on the sea. You can imagine what's going on the boat. Oh, you can't stand up on the boat, you know. And what if there was someone that you could, right in the middle of everything, just stop the wind? Would that change much for a while? No, because what would happen with the sea? Take a long time. You ever just throw a rock or a pebble in the in a lake? You know those ripples keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Can you imagine how wave action is? I mean, under ordinary circumstances, even if the storm stops, the sea's still going to be rough for a long time. Jesus says, peace be still. The wind stops, the storm stops, and suddenly the sea is just totally calm. Can you imagine seeing that? What does Jesus think about the disciples here? They still have no faith. Yeah. They were so worried. Now, you think about, there's two really um, very ex extreme things here. In 37, it's a fierce gale of wind, a terrible storm. 
In 39, it's perfect calm. Just between the great storm and the great calm is one thing. And what's that? Jesus' words. See how much difference a peace be still from Jesus makes? And Jesus is rebuking the disciples because they had not really come to have that degree of confidence in Jesus being able to save the word and calm the storm, though they had witnessed a number of striking miracles, still they were panicking in this crisis. After they'd seen all the things that they'd seen, do you think they should have maybe been a little bit more trusting than this? In Jesus? Yeah. And what kind of things have they seen already? Demons had been cast out. Yeah. Folks had been healed. Of all kinds of stuff. We know from other Gospels that he turned the water to wine already. You know, I mean, what's what's calming a storm? You know, I'd say, uh, you know, healing a leper right before your eyes or casting out a demon or whatever. They, I, I think Jesus has good reason to say in verse 40, uh, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They should have come to have trusted Jesus. I mean, should, I mean, should you learn anything about Jesus' abilities to handle a new crisis based upon how he's been able to handle the previous ones? It would make sense, wouldn't it? You know, if he's been able to take care of everything, well, he confronts a new situation, you expect him to take care of that too. So I think we can see why Jesus was disappointed in the lack of faith on the part of the disciples. How are we with all that? Do, do you believe that the Lord can handle any crisis? Do we act like that when new ones come into our lives? You know, we've got all of these miracles recorded. You know, it's easy to believe that Jesus can handle everything except the problem I'm facing at the moment. <laughs> and think, I can't deal with this one. So, I really see myself in the disciples here. And this idea of panicking, of not turning to the Lord and trusting the Lord, of maybe trying to take matters into our own hands in a wrong way, in a crisis, we really need to stop and think about the disciples haven't learned the lesson very well. We need to. What do the disciples think when this is all over? They're a bit freaked out. <clears throat> wow. Who is he? Well, why would they have? Why would have they have felt that way? Well, it's almost like this is this is a whole new level of control. I mean, I'm going to assume that, you know, they'd heard of healings and, and that type of thing before. Those things did happen in the Old Testament, for example. But this is a control over nature in a way that they may not have well, seen there, before. There were times in the Old Testament when God controlled nature or even calm storms, weren't there? Like Elijah on the mountain when he controlled the fire and the wind. And okay. Storms? It's a great example. What? Moses in the Red Sea. Yeah. Moses in the Red Sea, the flood. Jonah. Jonah. Jonah's what I'm thinking about. That's pretty that's pretty impressive. But now here's the thing. Who calmed the sea in Jonah's day? God. There's a great psalm, Psalm one oh seven. Starting about Psalm 107, 23. It's a long section dealing with God's power to calm the storm. I think it's not so much they're amazed that God can calm the storm, but who is this? He's calm!
calming the storm. He's doing what they understood only God could do. This is kind of a new level of a perhaps claim on Jesus' part to have powers that theoretically only belong to the Lord. They knew he was someone special, but they hadn't quite yes. gotten to that point, perhaps. I think so. I think this is this is so clearly God's... You know, you're right. You know, there had been some healings that God had used men for in the Old Testament. Even he sort of used men to raise the dead in the Old Testament. But he never used a man to calm a storm in the Old Testament. Comments and thoughts? Well, that story is well known. This next one is too, perhaps, but man, there's so much really cool stuff in this next one. And this is a very uh, dramatic story. And it's one that if you can imagine it as you read it, it's uh, really impressive. So, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. And they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean <coughs> spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about two thousand of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and, and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So Jesus gets to the other side, to an area... He did not spend much time at all in less of a friendly area to him. Perhaps even more Gentile presence here. Um, and he gets out of the boat. And there's this dude that meets him. <laughs> What's he like? Powerful. Yeah, how powerful? He can break chains. Yeah. I mean, like they tried tying him up, chaining him. Kind of reminds you of what you do with what. What do you usually chain up? An animal. Uh, can you see why they might treat him that way? He acted like an animal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this guy's a monster man. I mean, where does he live? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, kind of spooky. And, uh, you know, nobody had been able to find anything strong enough to even tie him up with. You know, that's, uh, that's kind of 
wild. And and what kind of things does he keep doing? Screams and yeah. fits. What do you think about somebody like that? What would we what would we call somebody like that today? A <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean like deranged. Like this guy's some super powerful monster that's just really uh, wow. This is this is really wild. How did people feel about this monster man? They were afraid of him. Absolutely. You know, he was terrifying everybody. We're in, in Mark chapter five, the first twenty verses. But uh, you know, I bet you. There was no problem with people messing around in that cemetery. <laughs> you get this guy haunting it? Whoa! You wouldn't, you wouldn't have even gotten close to that place. I mean, I just imagine him bellering out and just, you know, not wearing any clothes. I think we see that later on. You know, because after he'd been transformed, he was clothed and in his right mind. So here's some, some naked monster that nobody can even tie up. It, wow! And uh, we learn later why he was so superhumanly powerful. Why was that? Possessed by many demons. Yeah, evidently, maybe how many? Thousands. Yeah, I mean, the demons entered 2,000 head of hogs. So I'm thinking maybe, you know, a couple thousand demons. I mean, man, wonder how powerful we'd be if we had a couple thousand demons in us. Probably be enough to drive the poor guy crazy anyway. But uh, and and now it's interesting. Jesus is getting out of the boat here in this territory of the Gerasenes, and there's this guy that's been spending most of the time in the tombs, and who finds whom? He finds Jesus. He comes to Jesus. That probably not what I would have expected a guy like this to do. I wouldn't necessarily expect him to even want to see Jesus. Why is he rushing up to Jesus just as soon as Jesus gets off that boat? Maybe something a part of him that was not the demons that he wanted to be free of and wanted to get help. Maybe, but I don't think so in this case. I think this is the demons that are coming to Jesus here. Is he going to? It's almost like he would. The demons would go and attack anyone who came up. But I don't think they're attacking. They're not in attack mode here. It says that Jesus had told them to come out of the man, and they come up and say, "What have we to do with each other? And don't torment us." Yes, but. Even, you know, in verse... Uh, he ran up and bowed down before him. Yeah, in 2 and in 6, it looks to me like the demon is up front coming to Jesus. I don't know. I may have the wrong take on this, but how do you feel like this? these demons, this demon-possessed man, how is he looking at Jesus? Almost like a challenge. I'm scared of him. How are you scared of him? And why would he come to him if he's scared of him? That's a good question. I've got my theory. <laughs> well, because the demons believe in Jesus already, and they know his power, and they know that they don't have to be anywhere near him for him to affect them. So they are begging for his mercy. That's what I think. I think these demons... Are are being confronted by Jesus. I mean, he could, he gets close to them, and they're like rushing up. Please don't 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 hurt us. That that's what I'm saying. Seeing if I'm right about that, I may be wrong. You know, obviously some of that's interpretive. But if I'm right about that, it's like two thousand demons terrified of Jesus. That's pretty amazing. Certainly, at least as the story goes on. Even if I'm wrong about why they approach Jesus. As the story goes on, they do seem to be worried about what Jesus can do to them. 
And they're sort of coming to Jesus and, and, and I mean, the fact that they bowed down before him in verse 6, I mean, that's like an act of uh, humility, an act of deference. You'd bow down, well, I don't think they're bowing down to Jesus like because they want to worship him, but they bow down to him for what reason? He's higher. Desire? Higher. He's higher, yes, he's higher, and they're wanting... They, they want something. Yes, exactly. So they're like trying to show Jesus respect so that he'll do what they want him to do. Now, what they want him to do, what they want Jesus to do in verse 7 is not to torment them. For Jesus had been saying, come out of the man. Jesus says, what's your name? What's this guy's name? Legion. Legion. Why Legion? Yeah, a legion would be like a bunch of soldiers, whole army division. So there's so many demons in this guy, the guy got the name legion from that. And they asked Jesus something really odd in verse 10. In fact, they're begging Jesus, imploring Jesus in verse 10 earnestly. So I take it that they're just pleading with Jesus for what? not to be sent out of the country. Yeah. Not to be kicked out of the country. This is one place where I would like for us to look at the parallel because this sheds some light on it. Luke chapter 8. So it's like, what do you mean not sent out of the country? Luke 8 is the parallel. It's exactly the same except this gives it in a little different way that helps us. Verse 30, Luke 8, 30, Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Look at Luke 8, 31. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Abyss means what? Very deep. Yeah, like... A place of torments for, perhaps. Yeah, the pit. An abyss literally is a bottomless pit. But in this case, the abyss really refers to what? Hell. They're saying, don't send us to hell. Well, how would they have known anything about hell? Had they escaped? Yeah, that's, we assume that's where they had been. <laughs> you know, that's where they've lived. They've had hometown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like, you know, they're actually saying to Jesus, don't send us back home. Don't, and I'm guessing. Now, they're going to ask him to send him, send them into these, these pigs as an alternative to being sent back home. I'm assuming from that that they're assuming that if they get kicked out of the guy and they don't have anywhere else to go, they have to get recalled back home. And, well, now, here's one of the things that I think is intriguing about this story. Did you sort of have the idea that probably, you know, the devil and his demons and all, that they probably sort of liked being in hell? That it was probably kind of a place that, you know, we wouldn't want it, but it's probably kind of a paradise for them? Evidently not. Evidently it's so bad, they can't even stand it. They'd even rather go into a herd of pigs which probably would not be where I'd really most prefer going. <laughs> but that would be preferable to having to go back to the bottomless pit. But now if you stop and think about it, you remember a statement Jesus made one time about what hell had been prepared for in the first place? The devil's angels. Yes, know where that is? Yeah, I mean, nowhere in the Bible it says that. Good question. Revelation. Matthew 25, 41. That's Matthew 25, 41. See, the original purpose of, of the place of torment was of a place for God to punish Satan and his angels. So don't ever think that hell is a place where Satan, you know, he gets his fun there. That's where he likes. No, he hates it too. You know, his demons, they beg earnestly, please don't send us back there. Anywhere but there. And I think that can help us a little bit. Because, man, if 
they don't even like it. They're just begging and pleading not to go back there. I expect it's a place we really don't want to be in either. And that's probably Satan's biggest incentive for punishing, trying to punish God by taking us away from him. I hadn't thought about that before. And I, I hadn't quite figured all of it out, why he was so angry with God at this point. Well, yes. Yes, he's the arch enemy of God. And think about how Satan treats his people. Satan knows all about how bad this is. But what does he want us to do? He wants us to join him there. Yes, but that's cruel. You know, would a good person wants, want everybody else to suffer with them? No, a good person would say, if I've got to go through this, I sure don't want you to. Satan, well, he wants everybody to go through it with him. He wants everybody turned against God. Satan does not give any favors to his subjects. He's very much against his subjects. He hates them. So that's a really good lesson to learn from this. It's just to see how hell is for the devil. And also to see how mean and cruel Satan is to his people. And to his demons, for that matter. It's basically like Exactly. He is. He's, that's exactly how he is. He wants to torment everybody, including his most loyal followers. There is no love, there's no loyalty on the devil's side. It's all wicked. Comments and thoughts through this point in the story. Gary? Yes. Um, what was that? What makes you say that you think they've already been uh, into the abyss or came from there? That was home or whatever. <coughs> well, that's from Matthew twenty-five forty-one, the place prepared for the devil. But you think they'd already been there? That's what I'm assuming. Is that before they got to heaven, where would God? <coughs> that's apparently the place where God had all the evil celestial beings kept. That, that's my, my understanding, is that's, that's kind of their residence. What about Revelation? I know it's symbolic, a lot of it, but it talks about opening the abyss and becoming, you know, a demonic <coughs> presence in the locusts and whatever comes out. Yes. So, I mean, that could be conclusive. But it would help. Be similar. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think those locusts in, in Revelation 9 were demon-like creatures. Certainly allied with the devil. And they were released from their... Yes. ...living place. Yes. Yes, I think so. And they came out to torment <coughs> the men who didn't have the seal of God on their foreheads. They came out to torment their own kind. Now, they didn't torment the people with the seal of God on their foreheads, not because they wouldn't have wanted to, because God wouldn't let them. But they want to torment anybody. You know, again, in, in, in hell, there is no love, there's no loyalty, there's no faithfulness, there's no honesty, there's no goodness, there's no compassion. There's, there's nothing virtuous. Other thoughts uh, through verse 10 or so? Why do you think he uses the wording like sending them out of the country? I guess it just seems kind of weird to word it like that. Well, I guess that's where it'd be, all right. <laughs> that, that's probably like kind of a euphemism. It's kind of a nice way of putting it. <laughs> Get out of Dodge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think that's a that's a little more polite than saying, you know, don't send us to hell. Other comments or questions through ten. Okay, so the demons see this herd of swine. And what do they ask Jesus? Please send us there. Yeah. Can we please go there? Please send us there. Now, 
I think with what we've said so far, it's understandable why Jesus, why they would want to go into the pigs. You know, I think that makes sense. Anywhere. Now, that's who was there. I mean, obviously he's not going to let you know, these demons go into another person. Or maybe he'll go, let them go into the pigs. Pigs were unclean animals to the Jews too. So they think they've got, got a chance of talking Jesus into that. The thing that surprises me in this story, one of the more surprising lines, I think, at this point, is verse 13. Would you have expected that? Jesus gave them permission. When would you ever think Jesus would go along with a request from a group of demons? Doesn't that strike you as a little odd? You would assume that Jesus would always deny anything Satan wanted, Jesus would be against. But they begged Jesus for the chance to, uh, you know, go into the pigs. And Jesus like, okay. You're thinking, what is that? Why would he agree with that? I think that would be, uh, you know, kind of an odd thing in some ways. But, I think soon we see the point of that from Jesus' perspective. Now, I'm guessing they didn't teach courses in, you know, demons into pigs in, you know, demon school. <laughs> and so probably they'd never gone into pigs before. I mean, certainly, I think you can see all over the Bible, Satan is not all-knowing. He does not have all knowledge like God does. If he had, there's a bunch of boners he'd pull, he's pulled throughout history he would never have done if he'd known what was going to happen. Like, how about crucifying Jesus, for one, from his perspective? Um, so, I'm guessing these demons really didn't exactly know what this would be like. They just think, well, it's going to be better than their best. But what was it like? Yeah, what happened to these poor pigs? They seem a little bit upset about their new uh, roommates. <laughs> they they just go berserk and stampede off the cliff. I mean, you know, the pigs couldn't handle the presence of demons inside. You know, they were just tormented. Uh, that that's my reading of this, and I'm guessing the demons had the clue. They didn't know that was what's going to happen, but it did. But I'm assuming Jesus knew that that's what was going to happen. Because when the pigs plunged off the cliff into the water, into the sea, what happened to the poor pigs? They drowned. Does that put them in the That's my guess. Based upon the fact that the demons seemed to think if they didn't have a good alternative to suggest, Jesus would send them out of the country. And now they're in drowned pigs that I'm assuming they can't stay in now that the pigs are dead. I'm sort of seeing this as Jesus saying under his breath, well, if you want a roller coaster ride on your way back to the abyss, so be it. Go ahead. <laughs> he outsmarts them. He knows what's going to happen. And so now it makes sense why he lets this happen. He's not really, it's, it doesn't change anything. They still got to go to the abyss. They just get a little bit of a thrill on their way. <laughs> now here's something that would even be better. But I'll give you the pro and the con for this. Look at Matthew 12. I really want to believe this, but there's a con that may make this, keep this from being true. Matthew 12, 43. Um, here's an unclean spirit that goes out of a man, passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Evidently doesn't find anybody to go into and it comes back to the man, finds his house unoccupied and swept and put in order, and goes and brings seven demon buttons, and they enter the man, and the latter state's worse than the beginning. But I want you to notice verse 43. When the demon went out of the man, it passed through what kind of places? Waterless. Waterless places. Some have taken from that that demons don't like water. Which, if that's true... Ooh, touche. <laughs> Not only did they have to go back to the abyss, but they had to go through water to get there. Something they wouldn't have liked. However, 
I must show you the other side of this. Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. May, may belie that. Because in Mark 9, there's this boy that was demon-possessed, and the demon was like a demon that was sort of masochistic to the boy, tried to hurt the boy. And in Mark 9.22, it has often thrown him both into the fire, into the, into the water to destroy him. So in that case, the demons weren't above trying to drown the kid to kill him. So maybe that's not a fair point. But boy, that would really be cool if that was the case. And uh, so you can take that for whatever it's worth. Alright, so that's the end of kind of the first stage of this. The demons leave the man, go into the pigs, and the pigs plunge off the cliff and are drowned. <coughs> Comments and questions to this point. Second um, Peter chapter 2 says about angels uh, they go into Tart- Tartarus or whatever. So I don't know if that sheds any light. Yes, but I think it probably does. I think that's another passage that would be the same. Because really demons are are some kind of angelic kind of beings that apparently were in this place of torment awaiting judgment. Jude also says that in Jude uh, verse 6 that he keeps in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So evidently the demons and Satan are in a, a place like hell awaiting judgment. Chris. It also would have been a lot more uh, obvious or dramatic to the spectators by doing the way he did, rather than just the man suddenly becoming well. Yeah. Because they went and reported everything, including the swine and, and what had happened. So it left a much bigger impression on the people. It really shows you how powerful these demons were and how many of them there were and all that. I agree. This makes Jesus' healing of this man much more dramatic. I think I've been maybe giving the demons too much credit because I always thought that whenever they said send us into the swine, they had some idea of what they were gonna what they were gonna do to the swine and then so now this area's livelihood has just gone over the cliff. And so that they would I wasn't thinking about them returning to the abyss, but some to some extent, you know, they're trying to get the people to dislike this guy who puts demons in our pigs and makes our money run away. I think that's giving the demons too much credit, personally. Yeah, 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 I do. I I think... I mean, you look at the stupid things the devil does. (laughs) I do not think he has that much perception. Now, granted, you know, what would it be like fighting an enemy like God? I mean, he would make anybody fighting against him look stupid. Because he's got ultimate wisdom. So, but but you look at it over and over again, the devil overreaches himself. The devil, what he does blows up in his face. It backfires on him. You know, it boomerangs against him. And I really think that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's always Jesus who's going to be outsmarting the devil. Not the devil who strategized some way to outsmart Jesus. Now, there may be some other ways of reading this, but, but that's, that's my view of this, is that Jesus had the upper hand in terms of knowing what would happen. Chris? I certainly believe Jesus knew what was going to happen. I think it's also possible that Jesus caused the pigs to go into the water. That's possible. Say, okay, you can go into the pigs, but it's not going to be for long. Yeah, yeah that almost leads to the same thing, whether he caused it or whether pigs would always jump over the cliff when they got demons in them. Nothing's, you know, comes about so I would have loved to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 2,000 swine. Stab-beating pigs. Do pigs ever stampede? I've never, I've never seen 2,000 swine in one location. I mean, that is a huge... That would have been a smelly place, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of pigs. That is a lot of pigs. We lost a good bit of bacon that day, guys. <laughs> wow. Then apparently pigs do stampede and they can't swim because if they do, their hooves will cut their throats. I mean, they'll slip through their own throats. Whoa. If, if they tried to swim, the pigs' hooves would slip their throats. That's wild. <laughs> I'm trying to think about a pig doggy pig. <laughs> uh, well, 
Well, we could, we, 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 if you've got a spare pig, we'll uh, fill up the bathtub and see what happens. <laughs> Might want to try it on a small one first. All right. Anything else through verse 13? Try it on a guinea pig. Certainly the world portrays the devil in cartoon and in everything as uh, the ruler of hell and not uh, being tormented there also. Yes, yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think that perception is, is accepted even among a lot of Christians or those that claim to. Yes. Yeah, I think seeing hell for what it really is is a place where God is tormenting and torturing Satan. I mean, even when in Revelation 20, that angel chained Satan up, the dragon, and cast him into the abyss and sealed it over him and wouldn't release him for a thousand years. You get the impression that's not where the devil wanted to be. So, yeah, I think, I think we shouldn't think of this as being... Well, this is kind of the devil's domain that he's crafted to be his, you know, dungeon of concocting his schemes. You know, that's kind of what you see in movies and things. You know, the evil genius has their place that nobody else would like, but they love it because they can do all these things. No, I think I think hell is only torment and torture for even the devil himself. It's not. It's not like sending a kid to his room where he's got. The TV and the computer and the and the. the, 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 the. Yes, exactly. Other thoughts so far? Good discussion. Well, all right. So the herdsmen, you know, there were obviously people taking care of those pigs. They go into the city and the countryside and tell everybody what's happened. Now that created quite a stir. You know, here you've got just an opportunity like you wouldn't believe. Here's Jesus, hardly ever been on this side, this particular region. And, and here he is, just within walking distance of these people. A man who can even cure the absolutely incurable monster man living in the tombs. Can't bind him, not even with chains and shackles. Can you, what would happen? What if you knew Jesus was, was down in uh, Greenwood? <laughs> Whoa, would you want to go? <laughs> yeah, I think we can dismiss the class right now. You know, wouldn't that be an opportunity? I mean, think of all the things Jesus could do in healing people, casting out demons, teaching them. Wow, this is a tremendous opportunity. And so the, the herdsmen go and they tell everything that's happened and they come to Jesus and they see it with their own eyes. Look at verse 15. Here's this man, only it's nothing like he was before. This is amazing. And, and everybody tells them everything that happened, verse 16. Their one awesome opportunity. <laughs> and what do they do? And they... They acted like the demons and begged him. They implored him, in this case, to leave. Good point. Yes. They asked him to leave. What in the world were they thinking? They wanted Jesus to leave? What an opportunity. And they're, they're throwing it all away. What, what would be the reasoning here? Why would they have wanted Jesus to leave? That's one of the reasons why I thought with the swine, 2,000 of their little piggy banks had just drowned. And so they were out a lot of money now. But Yeah, you know, somebody owned those pigs, I suspect. Maybe several somebodies. And somebody's planning on butchering those one of these days. And probably a whole lot of people are planning on eating those. This just really crippled the local economy right here in one fell swoop. I mean, I don't know. How much is a pig worth today? Any idea? Not much. <laughs> 50 bucks? Can you get 50 bucks for a pig? 100 bucks? Yeah. 100 bucks for a pig. If you get 100 bucks per pig, you had 
2,000 pigs. You know how much that is? <laughs> That's almost a quarter of a million dollars. Isn't that whoa? I mean, you'd eat for the rest of your life on 2,000 pigs. Wow. So, they value their pigs more than they value Jesus. And they ask him to leave. I wonder if we're not like that sometimes. You know, theoretically, it'd be nice to have Jesus around, but when he starts hurting us, you know, he starts costing us money, he starts having demands on us. We like our pocketbook more than we like the Lord. They just really did miss out on a tremendous opportunity. But Jesus does cost you something. I mean, there'll be things that you can't do, and there'll be sacrifices you'll have to make. There'll be, there'll be damages, in one sense, if you have Jesus close by. So he just said, you know, please leave. What does Jesus do? They asked him to leave. What does he do? He leaves. He leaves. Jesus does not stay where he didn't want it. He's got plenty of other places to go. So he gets into the boat, and guess uh, guess who wants to be an extra passenger? Legion man. Yes. Can you understand why he'd want that? And have the best reputation. Well, yeah, that's true. And <laughs> whoa, man, you want to be the with the one who healed you. I mean, what if anything else bad happens to him? You want to have Jesus. You want to be as close to him as you can. It'd be security. It'd be hope. It'd be everything. Man, he wants to go be with Jesus. Isn't that a great thing? He wants to be with Jesus. But Jesus constantly does things that are just the opposite of what I would have thought would have happened. What does Jesus tell this guy? I know. Go home and tell your people all about this. Isn't that strange? So many people Jesus asked to follow him, some wouldn't. Here's a guy who wants to and Jesus says don't. <laughs> so what's Jesus' motive? You almost said it, but what's Jesus' motive for not letting this guy follow <coughs> Accompany you. Uh, until it has passed. Why? To tell everyone of his great works and what he has done. Well, yeah. they've, they've kicked Jesus out of the country, so to speak. But they haven't kicked this guy out. So he can go in and do what Jesus came to do in a sense of preaching about God and the great works that can be done. And and so Jesus is asking the man to sacrifice what might have been more comfortable in terms of, you know, being able to be with Jesus. To get out of his comfort zone. <clears throat> And do something that would probably be harder. Let Jesus leave and him go into a city. And tell everybody what Jesus is. <laughs> there are times when what we might ought to do isn't staying with all of our best Christian friends, having a lot of fun, enjoying each other's company. There may be times what Jesus asks us to do is go to people who don't care about me and tell them. You know, if all Christianity amounted to was just getting to enjoy being with other strong Christians all the time and sort of forming our own commune, not letting anybody else in, that would be pretty pleasant. It's not all it involves. Jesus had a big mission, and this guy's got a part to play in it. He needs to go back home, and he needs to tell him what Jesus has done for him. But I thought Jesus always told people not to tell. In an area where he couldn't move. This is an area where nobody knows of him. Yeah, in Mark 1 with the leper, Jesus told the leper not to tell because he was getting too popular being thronged as a wonder worker. There's no danger of him becoming too popular in this area. They need a good missionary. Seems like Jesus also usually wanted people to figure out who he was for themselves instead of being told. But here, uh, they're not going to figure it out any other way. Um, comments and thoughts on all this? For some people, it's really obvious the cost from the beginning. Others, the cost comes later. And that almost goes back to the parable of the seed, the sower. 
what choked out some of them was some of that cost maybe they didn't realize from the beginning. Uh, here, they had already paid the cost and didn't want anything to do with Jesus, in, in a sense. Uh, I think it's, you know, for a lot of people looking at it, um, you know, becoming a Christian, well, the things that are more valuable to us Maybe things as simple as, well, I like my, I like my weekends, you know, free. I'm not gonna, you know, I don't want to be uh, tied down or where I have to attend somewhere or worship, you know, on Sunday. Uh, or there may be other, you know, that may be a small cost, or there may be major costs such as uh, your lifestyle or other things that would have to change. I think that's a good example or a good illustration, I guess, of that. Yes, absolutely. Good thoughts. Other comments? It seems that uh, these people didn't consider that Jesus could have restored or healed this situation mm -hmm. somehow. They just assumed it was over, mm -hmm. damage has been done, get out. I think so. They really didn't think much more deeply than just the hurt over the pigs. <laughs> yes. Um, it's just kind of interesting looking through this passage how many times the word implore is used. Yeah. You've got the demons imploring Jesus one, two, three times. Um, the people imploring him to leave. And then the man imploring him, you know, let me go with you. So, they all wanted something, and they were all, I guess you could say, begging for it, and, and it was kind of interesting looking at what they wanted. And, so. Good point. Other thoughts? I was kind of thinking about um, when he had sent out the demons from the sky, and that we're never in so bad a situation that Jesus can't help us. Yes. Hopeless causes are Jesus specialty. You can see that over and over again. Sarah? I have a note here from somewhere saying that Jesus had more power in his words than men do in their strength. So... And it's actually next to verses 3 and 4. So Good point. They were trying to bind and control this this man. And what they could not do with chains, etc. Jesus was able to, you know, I should say free him, but also restore him. Excellent. <coughs> Other thoughts? Why wasn't he accepted in this area besides this event? Was there, I and mean, why he hadn't gone there much, obviously, and was there, from what I understand, was it mostly Gentiles? Well, something's going on to have 2,000 pigs around there. Pigs were unclean animals to the Jews. Either these people are not very faithful Jews, or maybe Gentiles, or mixture. But it doesn't leave you with a very good impression of them when you know they're raising 2,000 pigs. And just, you know, just the fact, if they were Gentiles, that fact alone didn't stop others from accepting Jesus. And yes, and you're right. Will, um, maybe this first impression <coughs> just wasn't a very good impression. Yeah. <laughs> to them. Yeah. Maybe so. I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the reception to Jesus varied some. You know, he didn't get the same reception every place. But all the reasons for that, I don't know. Maybe the herdsmen were, like, afraid. Maybe if he did that, maybe he could do other damages that we probably wouldn't know. About. Yeah, I guess they might have just uh, suddenly become unemployed after this. <laughs> the herdsmen. Yeah, it, it kind of scares them. What else is Jesus going to do? You know, what isn't safe? <laughs> well, you know, the demons got something they didn't want when they asked. So, I mean, you know, why should they ask what if he gives them something? That's true. 
Uh, you have to be careful what you ask Jesus for. Other comments and questions? Okay. We've got a story within a story here um, in this next one. So let's read 21 to 34. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had an, a hemorrhage for twelve years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself the power proceeding from him, had gone forth, turned around in the crowd, and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched you? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Alright, so Jesus comes over to the other side, the side he's more familiar with. And of course, like always, there's what? Lots of people there. And one of those people was a synagogue official named Jairus. And he comes imploring... Begging Jesus earnestly for what? His daughter. Yeah. What's wrong with his daughter? She's sick. How sick? Close to that. Yeah, she's about to die with this sickness. And he's begging Jesus for help. And so Jesus starts off with Jairus to go to his house and heal the girl. That's just the start of that story. Do you have comments and questions about that? While he's on the way, this other event occurs. You've got this woman who has a big problem. Um, she's, we would say she has female problems. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's gone to all the gynecologists and whatever they had. And how much has that helped her? Not that good. Not that good. worse. Uh, she's gotten steadily worse and spend all the money yeah <laughs> kind of sounds like uh, modern days every once in a while doesn't it spends everything she's got can't find any doctor that can cure her so she's gotten worse and she's thinking what yes now most people had the um, decency to come to Jesus and ask him for healing. You know, here's my problem. Can you help me? Why doesn't she do that? Just too big of a crowd. It's like she couldn't get to him. Well, she could get close enough to touch his yeah. clothes. But not, couldn't, probably couldn't get his attention. Mm, I don't know. I don't think she tried. But she didn't seem to want to uh, make a big deal. Can you understand why? She was, she was unclean. <coughs> I mean, how many of you would like to go in front of a crowd of strangers and reveal that you've got some unmentionable problems physically? I mean, that'd be kind of like, I mean, it's maybe not quite as much of a stigma. But, you know, would you go in front of a bunch of people and say, uh, you know, I've got some kind of uh, sexually transmitted disease or something like that? You know, I mean, that's embarrassing. You want to even go in front of a crowd of people and say, I've got the flu, you know? I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of like, you can understand her embarrassment, her feeling uncomfortable and, and uneasy, and, and she really feels like just touching his clothes. That's all it's going to take. And so that's what she's determined to do. And she does touch his clothes, and lo and behold, what happens? And she can tell it. She feels different right the moment she touches his clothes. Isn't that amazing? 
Jesus? Well, what does he do? It's like, what? <laughs> you know, it reminds me of being in Brazil. And on crowded buses and subways, it is amazing to me. The whole concept of personal space <laughs> turned on its head <laughs> on a Brazilian bus. I've seen buses with people literally hanging off of them. You can imagine what it's like inside. I mean, you know, I, 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 I bet there have been times when I've been being touched by six or eight people at once. You're just crowded in, and then somebody has to get through. <laughs> you know, it is amazing uh, how our bodies will conform to the necessary space. <laughs> Whoa! I mean, and, and on subways, at the peak time on the main subway crossing, you may take three or four trains before you're up there, uh, you better not decide to change your mind. Because when those doors open, you don't have anything to do with it. You are bodily taken into the middle of that subway, crushed in between a bunch of people. That's what's happened with Jesus. You know, he's got all these people crowded around him. And he said, who touched me? They're like, what in the world do you mean? But she knew what he meant. She knew exactly what he meant. How is she feeling right now? Scared to death. Now, in a way, doesn't this seem really kind of mean on Jesus' part? She always was trying to avoid attention. She was embarrassed by this whole thing. And he calls her out front and center in front of everybody saying, who touched me? Why would Jesus do that? Maybe, but I think there's a better reason he does it than just that. Faith, great faith, just to have the nerve to just touch his garments without asking. That was faith in some ways. Well, I suspect um, that she had she'd suffered so much at the hands of the physicians. She tried everything. She was willing to try any any cure. So she would would have tried tried touching anybody's garment if she thought it would work. And maybe it was a matter of getting her to understand where it came from and, you know, your faith in in me and and that kind of thing, as opposed to, this is not just a little trick, sort of. I think that's a good answer. I want you to think about some of what would have happened to her if Jesus hadn't done this. What if she just goes back home healed, but nothing's ever been said? What kind of misconceptions will she end up with? His clothes are magic. He just touches clothes and he heals you. Is it, is it the case that everyone who touched his clothes was automatically healed? What about the people who arrested him? What about the soldiers that were gambling for his clothes? You know, it wasn't magic clothes. But she might have thought that. I'll tell you what else she might have thought. She got this without permission, without asking. I think she could go home and feel guilty eventually. That she kind of stole this healing from him. I think his purpose is really for her. She tells the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction." It was embarrassing. It was uncomfortable. It was difficult. But in the long run, she will have a lot more tranquil conscience. And she won't have the idea that this was magic. Jesus healed her purposely. He knew what he was doing. And now she knows that. So I think there are good reasons for Jesus to do something that was kind of embarrassing to her. Comments and questions on this story? Also, maybe if he didn't like tell her that, she probably told all her friends to touch everybody's clothes. Or at least Jesus's. Yeah. Yeah, I just think he doesn't want her thinking that this was sort of a magic clothes thing. I mean, you know, some uh, oh, there were a bunch of people crowded around Jesus. They were touching him. They weren't they were being healed. He knew what she was doing, therefore he chose to heal her.
Other comments and questions and thoughts to 34? Since we're about ready to go into the rest of the story, could it also have been just a little bit a delaying tactic? <clears throat> I don't know if it I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is not above delaying, but yeah. I'm not sure in this case. Alright, I'll stick with my first answer. <laughs> <laughs> I like your first answer. Alright. Um, I think we're going to quit here just because of the time. and uh, we'll, we'll have to go back and kind of review this a little bit, but we'll do that. Uh, and for me...